Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 is what we want to look at today in God's Word. You know, the other day I was watching a, a documentary on World War II, and if my understanding is correct, between the Allied and the Axis powers, some estimate that over 14 million people were killed as a result of that war. 14 million people. As I began to think about that, I couldn't help but think about my granddad and thank the Lord that he had survived that war. And he had come home and he had had children and he had had a family and he got to be my granddad, but also began to consider how many people did not come home. And all the children, all the grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren who were never born because men and women never returned home. We consider those people who have given their lives heroes, don't we? We consider them great people who should be honored and respected, and well, we should. But why is that? It's because they were willing to humble themselves. They were willing to lay aside the easier life. They were willing, many times, to lay aside their own plans, and they were willing to protect us, to provide for us, and to serve us. Those who served in those kind of ways, whom we consider heroes, people worthy to look up to, teach us an important principle found in God's Word. That principle is this. The way up is down. The path to greatness is humility. If you and I want to be great people, if we want our lives to matter, to make a difference, to leave a mark on this world, if we want to accomplish great and significant things with our lives, and most importantly, to be pleasing to Almighty God, we must learn to spend our lives serving others. Instead of trying to grab our life and to keep our life, giving our lives away. Well, turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians is one of the letters of Paul in the New Testament known as the prison epistles. Or the word epistle, is not, that's not a wife of the apostle, okay? The word epistle means a letter, okay? So the, the prison epistles are the letters that Paul wrote from prison along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. The prison epistles, Paul, as he was in prison, felt led to write to some of these new churches about some of the things that God was wanting to do in their lives. And as we read the book of Philippians, we come to understand that though Paul loved this church greatly, the Philippian church, it was beginning to struggle a little bit. Now think about it for just a minute. What if your spiritual leader was in prison? Wouldn't that be kind of a struggle? Wouldn't you kind of be wondering some things about, okay, God, what do you want to say to us? Who are you going to provide as our spiritual leader now? Which direction are we going to go? God, there's just some things that we're kind of struggling here with. And, as, and on top of that, they themselves were facing some persecution. And as a result of all the stresses involved in all those issues, as you can imagine, they began to kind of struggle amongst themselves. There were beginning to be some difficulties in their church family. With all of that going on, the people wondered, as you can as well imagine, how Paul felt about this. Okay, Paul, you're the guy in jail, <laughs> you know, and, and you're supposed to be our spiritual leader here. How are you feeling about this? And so Paul wrote to them to address those concerns, and he left no doubt about how he was doing. He shared with them how he was responding to the situation and how God wanted them to respond to it. And in an amazing and dramatic way, he showed them how we can deal with difficult circumstances in our lives. In fact, you may know this, but the words joy 
or rejoice are the most frequently used words in Paul's letter. In a letter where he's writing back in how we should respond to difficult circumstances, his emphasis, and some people even claim, is the theme of the book of Philippians is on joy. Isn't that a lesson for us this morning from the Apostle Paul? Well, while joy is no doubt an important part of the message of the letter, and it helped them to see how a spiritual leader in their lives might respond to what was going on, I believe the real message of the book is this. Paul is encouraging those new believers to stand firm in unity through humility for the sake of spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was trying to get across them. You can see it in chapter 1, I believe it's verse 27. It's kind of put in a nutshell there. But the theme is, listen guys, I want you to stand together. I want you to stand in unity through humility for this purpose, for the purpose of spreading the good news about what Christ has done for you in your life and what He wants to do in the lives of others. Well, today... We want to focus on that humility part. Paul spoke to them about humility. In spite of the challenges they were facing outside of their church family and now inside their church family, they had the wonderful privilege and opportunity to see some great, great things happen together through their lives, of partnering together to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. But Paul tells them in Philippians chapter 2 that we're just about to read, the way up... The way to accomplish God's purposes in your life, whatever that is, whether it's as a church family or whether it's in your own life, the way up is down. The path to seeing great things happen in and through our lives is through humility. And that's what I want to talk about today. How to accomplish great things. Do you want to be a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who makes a difference, who makes a significant impact, who lays tracks for others to follow in your life. Well, let's turn to these verses to see how that can happen today. First of all, if you want to accomplish great things in verses 5 through 6, we see that you've got to think like Jesus thinks. If you want to accomplish great things in your life, there's going to have to be some change in our thinking. We've got to think like Jesus thinks. Let's read verses uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now he says, Have this attitude. That word attitude, some of your uh, translations say mindset or this way of thinking. He says, in order to accomplish what God wants to do in your life, you've got to think like Jesus thinks. Now, we might ask, well, how does Jesus think? Well, let's go back to verses 1 through 4. He says, have this attitude. We say, what attitude? Well, he told us in verses 1 through 4. We just hadn't read that yet. Verses 1 through 4, he says, therefore... If there is any encouragement, now remember, this is in the context of the struggle they're going through. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, you ever wonder, is there any reason to keep going? Is there any reason to keep pressing on? Is there any reason to do the right things? Nobody's ever wondered that before, have you? You guys are all much more spiritual than I am. But just hear me for a minute. Here's where we read Paul's words. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there it is, regard one another as more important 
than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In essence, Paul tells them in verses 1 through 4, if this life, if this walk with Christ, if serving Him is really worth it, if it's a message that's worth sharing with others, and by the way, uh, the way he puts it means he thinks it is. You know how it says there, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any uh, consolation of love, that sounds like a conditional statement, doesn't it? If, then. Well, what Paul says to them is, if blank is true, and I think it is, you could put that in parentheses. The way he puts this in the original language means that Paul is saying, if, and I think it is true, or you could translate it, some of your translations say since, don't they? Since there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is any consolation of love, Paul is saying to them, it is worth it to follow Christ, and since it is worth it, bring great joy to my heart, By getting on the same page. Paul is saying, listen, we need to be united. We need to get on the same page. And he tells us how to do that. He uses several phrases there to describe that. He says in verse 2, by being of the same mind. That means to have the same thinking. We can, as believers, think the same. We can have the same love. That love there is talking about the unconditional agape love of God, the unconditional love of God. He says, I want you to be of one soul. Now, doesn't that sound pretty close? I mean, of one soul means you are united, you are, you are harnessed together, that your souls are knit together in love. I want you to be that together. You're thinking the same, you're feeling the same. And then again, he, he, reiter, he reiterates there the last phrase, of one mind. That's just a different form of that first word that we said that means the same thinking. It sounds like he's trying to talk about our thinking, isn't he? He's trying to talk about our attitude. He's trying to talk about our perspective. In other words, if, if we're going to accomplish anything great for God together, we need to be together. We need to be on the same page. Isn't this a great word for some churches? <laughs> and the page we need to be on is seeing things, is thinking about things, approaching things like who does? Like Jesus does. We need to see like Jesus sees. We need to think like Jesus thinks. One author said this, thinking right is a major part of the message of Philippians. Isn't that true? Isn't our attitude, uh, isn't our response to our circumstances many times based on how we think, how we see those things, what our attitude and our mindset is towards those things? Thinking right is a major part of the message of Philippians. In fact, of the 26 times that that word to think is used in the New Testament, 10 are used in this short book of four chapters. It sounds like it's pretty important how we think. And he says, I want you to think. And I want you to think like Jesus thinks. What does that look like? Well, let's look at verse, uh, le- verse 3. He says, first of all, do nothing from selfishness. Now, that word selfish is an interesting word. It's a word that describes the attitude of someone during that time who would be running for political office. And that person was willing to do anything necessary to make themselves look better than their opponent. Now, uh, we've cleaned up that, haven't we? We don't do that in political races today. We don't put down other people so we can look better ourselves. But back way back, they used to do that. He says, don't make yourself look better than your opponent. It carries the idea even of, of resorting to unfair tactics to do that. He says, Christians, if you want to know how Jesus thinks, he says he would never do that. 
He says, do nothing like that. If you want to be great for God, you've got to get out of the tooting your own horn business. Don't do anything like that. He says, also, don't do anything from empty conceit, or you could translate that empty glory. It basically means this. Don't do anything from pride that has no basis. How would we say that today? You think you're better than you really are. (laughs) That's what we would say. You think you're pretty hot when you're not all that. That's what Paul's saying. Don't do anything like that. Ever known anybody like that? Ever known anybody that thought they were something, but maybe they weren't quite there yet? Maybe me, right? (laughs) Maybe you sometimes. Now, we all know in theory, we all know this, don't we? We all know that my own agenda, thinking that I'm something, has no place in God's people, right? We know that. We understand that. But how many churches have people like that in them? Let me say something more direct. I can guarantee you that this will happen in your family. This will happen in our church family unless we make an intentional decision to start thinking like Jesus. If we don't have an attitude like Jesus, we will have this kind of thing happen in our church. Listen to what one author said, and this is sad, isn't it? (laughs) One of the reasons he has a good sense of humor, one of the reasons that I don't like to go to meetings in churches is that I get tired of people having to thank Mrs. So-and-so because she brought a bouquet of petunias or Mr. So-and-so because he brought in an extra chair. And you don't dare leave anyone out because if you do, you'll be in trouble. He asked this question. Do Christians need to be recognized and complimented by others for things they do? He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, which is the way I believe King James puts it, means that people are trying to make a name for themselves, and they shouldn't be. This is not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He's a great God. And the more He comes out, and the more we think like He does, the more great things are going to happen through our lives. Many times in churches, you have people that want to be the premier soloist in the Christmas musical. Or or they think they should be elected to some particular leadership position in the church. But the Bible says the, the way to being great for God is not found in making a name for myself. It's found in thinking about other people. Now, don't get me wrong, friends. Listen. The, the, the Bible certainly teaches us that when I'm the recipient of a blessing from someone else, I, I need to be thankful. God challenges me to be appreciative to that person. But when I'm on the giving end, I should be doing it ultimately for God and for Him to be praised, for Him to be worshipped, for people to say, what a great God we serve. Isn't it just awesome to see people when, when things happen? And, and actually, I shared with you how God had provided a financially for part of our building process. I shared that. And I don't even know who that person is. What does it cause you to do? It says, God, you are awesome. We didn't even think about that person's name because they didn't let us. Now, I'm not saying it's always wrong for, for some of those kind of things to be known, but we've got to be on the careful side of it, don't we? When, when, when we don't focus on that person, but we focus on Christ, we say, God, you are such a great God. Instead of saying, wow, you're such a great person. Now, we should honor and, and thank God for people who are a blessing to us. But when we're the one being a blessing, we should not do it because we're looking to be praised by others. Yet today, even in churches, many people do nice things, not for God to be noticed, 
but so that they will look good to others. Paul said, do nothing. Not a single thing like that. If you want to think like Jesus, don't be thinking like that. He goes on to say, he doesn't say, don't, he doesn't say pretend you think others are more important to you. Or he doesn't say, you know, try your best to give that impression. But he says with humility of mindset, you hear that mind thing coming back? Apparently our thinking's what's warped. Amen? I don't always think right. And God needs to help adjust my thinking. But with humility of mindset or thinking, regard or consider one another more important than yourselves. It's interesting that regard or consider, that word that's, that's used there in, um, in verse 3, is a word that in other contexts is used to refer to leadership. It's almost as if God's word is saying, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a great person, see others or regard others as far superior. And that word far superior means that they stand out, that they outshine you. It's saying, you don't think you're something, you think they're something. That is challenging, isn't it? We usually are tempted, are drawn to focus on ourselves and not the accomplishments of others. It's also interesting that that word humility of mind, and don't miss this, that word humility of mind is not found in secular Greek sources before it's found in the Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that the word didn't exist until God made it up in the New Testament. And then after that, it started showing up in other writings. What does that say? God started this whole idea. Humility of mind thinking more uh, more often of others than I do of myself is not natural, is it? It doesn't come from us. We need God to show us that that's what He wants for us in order for us to think, about, think that way. In verses 5 and 6, He says, Now, have this attitude. Now we know what attitude, don't we? This kind of thinking that we've been talking about. Have this kind of mindset. That's exactly what Jesus did when He was here. In verse 4, He truly looked out for the interests of others, not himself. Amen, isn't that an understatement? Boy, when we think about the sacrifices that people have made for our country, we say, dear God, thank you. Thank you that somebody did that for me. And I didn't even know them. How much more for the Son of God, who deserved to be worshipped and adored, who was publicly beaten and humiliated, who had all the sins of the world placed upon him, how amazing it is that Christ did what he did for us. Certainly, above anyone else, he thought of others before he thought of himself, even though it says he existed as God. It says he existed in the very form of God. Now, that just means when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God himself. And the word existed means he, he has always existed as God. So when you're looking at Jesus, you're seeing one who is very God and has always been God. That one did not regard, it's the same word he talked about earlier, that, that one did not regard equality with God the Father as something. Now listen, this is, this is interesting. It's kind of hard to translate this, and some of our translations kind of, it's a little choppy here, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means Jesus didn't have to fight for it. He didn't have to cling to it. He didn't have to remind everybody in heaven, don't y'all know who I am? What's it saying? When Jesus came to earth, listen, (laughs) he didn't ask anybody to save his seat beside the Father for the next 33 years because he was worried that somebody might take it. He wasn't worried about that. Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, as something that he had to cling to or hold on to. He knew who he was, amen? Jesus knew who he was. 
He wasn't afraid. He didn't have an identity complex. He knew he is God. He didn't have to prove that to anybody. He just acted on that. And there was confidence in that. I love John 13, verse 3. Let me read that to you. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, the rest of the story is he washed the disciples' feet. Now, don't you think about that. Somebody that you love, that you respect, we can't even fathom Almighty God. I, even just to say, God washing your feet, we can't even fathom that. But, but don't you think about somebody that you love, somebody that you respect, getting down on their knees, putting a towel around their waist, getting out a basin of water, taking off your socks and shoes. It's gross to even think about, isn't it? Taking off your socks and shoes, and they start washing your feet. You say, Jesus, what are you doing? You might even say, that's not a good leadership principle. You need to be kind of showing them who's boss. Jesus didn't have to prove anything to anybody. He knew. He knew what God had sent him to do. He knew he came from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. He didn't have to prove anything. Isn't that powerful living? When you no longer, listen friends, when you no longer have to prove anything to anybody, how many of us are trying to prove ourselves to somebody? How many of us are 35, 45, even 55 and older and are still trying to show our parents that we are a good little boy, that we're a good little girl? I don't have anything to prove to anybody. That's not an attitude. That's not a, that's not a you know, uh, get out of my face, I don't have to prove anything to you kind of thing. That, that goes against what we're talking about here. It's just a, a confidence that, that I know who I am in Christ. And as a result of that, I'm free to serve in every possible way, amen? I don't have to show, don't you know who I am? I don't have to do that. God knows who I am. He has given me my identity. If you want to accomplish great things for God, you and I, we've got to start thinking like Jesus. I'm going to be honest. I don't think like this, do you? I need God to challenge me. I need to be more humble in my thinking. I need to follow the example of my Savior. And that's what happens, number two. We need to think like Jesus, but we need to act like Jesus acts in verses 7 and 8. Even though it was God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Having the right mindset, having the right thought process is critical, isn't it? I mean, we've got to think right before we can act right. That's where it begins, but that's not where it ends. If God changes the way I think about my life, it should change how I act on it, right? How I behave, how I live it. Jesus didn't just sit up in heaven and say, oh, I sure do love him. I sure do want to help them. I sure do wish somebody would do something about that. And I know I'm the only one that can. And boy, one day I sure do want to. Well, he did say, I sure do want to help them. But he stepped out of glory. He stepped out of heaven and he came and did something. Did he not? Amen. Aren't you glad Jesus actually came? Aren't you glad he didn't just say, boy, it would be nice if somebody did? Boy, I sure do want to help you one day. You know what? The Bible indicates that if Christ had not died for our sins, if He had not risen from the dead, we would still be lost and without hope in this world. 
He could have all the best intentions up in heaven, but he acted on it. Let's look at what he did. It says he emptied himself in verse 7. Now, theologians, people who like to sit around in in dark rooms and talk about how smart they are, they call this the the kenosis passage. And that's just a Greek word that, that means emptying, the emptying of Christ. Now, there's a lot of different opinions about what this means, but as we read the rest of God's word, I believe it's pretty clear. Though Jesus came as a man... He never ceased to be God. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But while on this earth, and listen to this statement, and I'll explain what it means, He voluntarily laid aside the independent use of His attributes as God. Now, what does that mean? Think about this. Though He could, listen though he could have demanded that all creation show up at that manger. He could have demanded that. Everyone will come and worship me for who I am. He could have done that. Though he could have struck down the smart aleck religious leaders immediately, though he could have gotten from place to place in an instant, why walk? You're God. Just go there. Though he could have called down angels to get him off that cross, He humbled himself under the authority of God the Father and he voluntarily, that's a key word, especially as it relates to us, isn't it? Sometimes we obey, but it's not always uh, liking it, right? I want to get to the point where I want to do the will of God, amen? I need to just do it because he's God, but I want to get to the point where that's the desire of my heart. That's why we're talking about this today. He voluntarily limited himself in many ways while he was on this earth in order to fulfill the plan for providing salvation to mankind. Isn't that powerful? Jesus voluntarily limited himself for my better good. Some of the most significant parts of that self-limitation are listed here. It says he took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of man. And we're talking about God here. Okay, let's don't forget that. We've already been told that though he existed as God forever and ever, he's been God. He took the form, same word used here that was used to say he was really God. So what does that tell us? Though he has always been God at his, some people call it incarnation, when he came as a person, when he came into this world, he took on the form of a man. He was made or he became a man. This tells us Listen, because there are people throughout history that have tried to say either he was part God and part man or he was only God or only man. This tells us clearly Jesus is fully God and he became fully man. He didn't just appear to be a man. Listen, we didn't need an appearance to die for us. We needed a person to stand in our place. Only man was required to pay for sin and only God had enough to pay it. So God came as a man. And what kind of man did he come as? Oh, a king, of course, right? I mean, he came as the president of the United States, the greatest nation in the world, right? I love our country, but you know what? He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. He came, actually, this word is used of a slave. And being found in appearance as a man, now I don't like the translation appearance because it might give the impression he looked like one, but he wasn't. No, being found in appearance... That word actually means to be searched out. That word to be found means to be searched out and scrutinized or examined. 
And appearance means as comprising everything that constitutes a person. So it means that even though you could examine and he was searched out and he was scrutinized, what's First John say? That which we have seen and held and heard and touched with our own hands and seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. Jesus is real. He really came. That's the testimony of those who searched him out and scrutinized him as comprising everything that constitutes a person. There's no doubt. He, he has always been fully God, and He became fully man. So imagine with me, if you will, God Himself. Can we even... I find it such a struggle even to get to that place where I can imagine it. Can you? Can we imagine... I don't even... I can't even picture all the glory of heaven. The perfection. Can you just think of everything that's wrong being made right? Can we put it that way? Everything that's wrong being made right. Everything that's bad, everything that's messed up, everything that we wish could be better, all the relationships restored. Imagine a place where everything is as it should be. Try to get me to come back. Amen? I love you, but I'm wanting you to come this way. Amen? In fact, while I, I believe unequivocally people don't speak to us from the dead, at a funeral many times I'll say to family members, I believe if your family member would say anything to you right now, I'd be, I want you to be with me. And contrast that to coming to a place where most things aren't right. What did Jesus give up for me? What did he do? That is what Jesus came into. And then imagine that king coming as a servant, as a slave. But we're not done yet. But on top of that, imagine that slave being killed by us. And on top of that, killed by death on a cross, one of, if not the most humiliating deaths ever died. Now, we romanticize the cross, don't we? It's one of the reasons why I like this old rugged cross up here. It's just wood. It's not really, I don't know, but it's styrofoam that looks like wood. But, but it looks like just beat up wood, doesn't it? It reminds me, and I just rocked some of your world. You never knew. <laughs> I never knew that. All right, are we over there? All right. It was just wood. It was just a cross. Jesus died on a cross for us. Let me ask you this. Would you be proud if someone in your family died in the electric chair? That's how it crosses over in our culture. We don't have crosses. We have electric chair or lethal injection, whatever you want to call it. So what does that imply? Would you be proud if somebody in your family was executed as one of the worst possible criminals in our society? The king came from worship, came from adoration, came from everything being just the way he planned for it to be. He came into this world where it's so messed up and he came as a servant to us. And then we said to him, we don't want your service. And we put him on a cross and we killed him. We put him on a, we tortured him and we beat him and we pulled the flesh off of his back. And I don't mean to be gruesome, but that's the cross. I mean, it was terrible. And worst of all, to have the sins of the world, all of them, placed upon his shoulders. Can you imagine that? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, And he himself, he alone, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why did he do that? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now listen to these words. For by his wounds you were healed. 
I can't imagine that. When I think about Jesus receiving those lashes across his back, that was for me. Dear God, no, stop it. I don't want that to happen. Jesus, please, don't die for me. Don't, don't do that. But that is exactly what he did because he loved you and he loved me. That's how Jesus would act. He would give his life. He would stand in the gap for my place. He would say, you're, you're in front of the firing squad, about to be executed. Hold up just a second, guys. I'll stand in his place. And now wait just a minute. Did I just say yesterday, there is no way I would go across the street to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. I mean, I love the Lord and everything, but I just cannot do that. Did I just say a couple months ago that there was some section of town, I don't care what kind of outreach we're doing, I, I can't possibly ever go do anything in that section of town. I may not have said it, but did you think in your mind, Robbie, you're crazy. You talk about one day some of us are going to quit our job and load up and move some other town or community or some other state or some other country and and we're going to be a missionary for the Lord full-time? you got to be kidding me. Man, I like my Coke too much. I like my Pepsi too much. They don't have it over there. Uh, you know, I like, I like what we eat over here. I like what we wear over here. I like the climate over here. What's the common pronoun there? I? No, that's reality, isn't it? That's how we think. You see what we're getting to? That's how we think. We think about ourselves. We're just naturally inclined to do that. Every single one of us. When I began to think about what Jesus did, hmm, these two ladies that he talks about over in just a few verses that were having this spat in their church, don't you think they probably looked at each other and said, man, that sure is petty. That sure is silly. We need to just give that up. There are too many people that need to hear about our Lord. And he paid for all this. And we don't want him to pay anymore. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry. I'll make this right with her. I'll get things right because we need to be working together. God, there's something you want us to do together. So many people that need to hear. Maybe I'm right. Maybe she's right. It just doesn't matter anymore. Jesus is right. He did it. And he deserves for me just to get, get over it. And that's not to make light of sometimes things are pretty serious, aren't they? They're pretty intense in our lives. When we begin to compare them with what the King of Glory did to us, if we want to accomplish great things for God, We've got to start thinking like Him. And we've got to start acting like Him. In verses 9 through 11, look what happened because Jesus did that. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him. That word means super exalted. It means you can't get any higher than that. <laughs> I mean, He just, He's to the moon, right? That's what the kids, you know, how much do you love me? I love you to the moon and back. Jesus was to the moon and back. He was highly exalted and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Now, many of you know, name represent a person's character during this time. So if your name was the highest name, that meant you had the highest character. I mean, you can't get any better than Jesus is basically what it's saying. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's just basically saying everybody, <laughs> everything. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. One day, everybody's going to have to admit he is Lord. It's better to do that now. As God speaks to our hearts, as God by faith wants us to trust Him, now's the time to bow the knee to Jesus. I'm going to one day. Now's the time to do that. 
He did what no one else would or could do. He gave his life for every one of us. And he received what no one else will or can receive. He's highly, super exalted. His name is above everybody else's name. Nobody higher than Jesus. And he is worshipped and adored by all of creation. Jesus, this is an understatement, isn't it? Truly accomplished something great, didn't he? I just stand in awe of him. And today, completely indebted to him because of the price that he paid for me. And he would say to us, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it for one of you. Isn't that powerful? If I was the only one, I believe Jesus would have given his life for me. Are you that one today that Christ gave his life for? Friend today, have you seen before today more than any that you've ever seen before in your life? Wow. This isn't just religion and going to church and giving money and doing a bunch of stuff and reading your Bible and have-tos and have-nots and whatever. God came for me. And we rejected him. But you know what? I just want to make it clear today that if the whole world rejected him, my statement would be, I will not. If I was there on that day, God, by your grace, I would have said, you are the Savior. You are here on this day. You have the opportunity to look at the cross and to allow what he did for you to impact your life just as real as if you were there 2,000 years ago. God, you are the Savior. You did what you said you did. And I put my faith and my trust completely in you and in you alone today. Friend, would you do that? Don't complicate it. Don't make it a bunch of stuff and trappings. You don't have to do anything. Just surrender to him today. Would you do that? So many of us today, God's speaking in our hearts about our attitudes, right? I've got an attitude problem I need to work on. God's speaking to my heart about my attitude. Not just my attitude, my mindset, the way I see things. Not just my attitude kind of gives an emotional feel to it, doesn't it? But it's a mindset. The reason I act the way I act and feel the way I feel is because I think the way I think. God's wanting to change my thinking. Is he changing yours today, friend? Would you just say to the Lord, God, I don't see things like you do. I just don't, God. I would not have thought about this today. I would not feel the way I feel about this, this, what we're talking about today if I hadn't heard it from you. Would you just thank him for that? You're speaking to me, God. I acknowledge that. I want to change my attitude. God, I'm a Christian. I've been serving you for 15 years, but i got an attitude problem. Is that what you'd say today? Maybe you say, Lord, I'm just starting out in my walk with you, but I'm already feeling the pull and the, and the, the, the tug of, of mixing your thoughts with the thoughts of the world. And God, I just want to stay focused on you. Would you ask him to help you today?